Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and our guest today is Stephen Kalin, Middle East correspondent for the Wall Street Journal, where he covers Saudi Arabia and the Arab Gulf states. Stephen has been based in Riyadh since 2017 and was previously Reuters correspondent in the region, reporting from Iraq, Egypt, Lebanon, and Saudi Arabia. Originally from New York, he studied political science at Davidson College and later Arabic at the American University in Cairo. My conversation with Stephen Kalin about developments in Saudi Arabia begins now. Stephen, welcome to On the Middle East. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the kind of scene setter. You've been based in Riyadh for the journal since 2017 and for Reuters in the region, including in the kingdom before that. More time, I think, than just about any other correspondent from a major Western newspaper to be based in Saudi Arabia, if I'm correct there. Now, it was in 2017 that Mohammed bin Salman became Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. Describe, if you would, the scope of social, political, and economic change in the kingdom over these years as you have observed it from the ground in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, there's been so much change in the past four years um, in, in a bunch of different areas. And um, to, to, the, to the point at which I think... Um, some sometimes being on the ground, you lose track of the extent that things have, are changing because it's sort of something that's happening, um, especially before COVID. Uh, there were changes on a monthly, weekly, sometimes daily basis, um, where especially I think the biggest um, uh, the biggest area for this has been social changes. Um, there were either new announcements coming out very regularly, or just sort of society evolving with those changes um, uh, to, to the point where I, I think in many ways, it's a very different place now than it was four years ago um, when I arrived. And I think just, you know, that, uh, people, people know about um, the, you know, women driving, which, um, which happened in 2018. Uh, that, that I think for the first few months was, um, the sort of thing where even in Riyadh, where most of the changes are, I, I would say the changes are uh, most amplified in Riyadh and then probably in Jeddah and the Eastern province, um, or at least the, the Khobar Dimam um, uh, area, uh, they're, they're less uh, magnified, I, I think, in, in many other cities, although there are significant changes there as well. Um, but in the months after women started driving, I remember counting um, every day as I went out, how many women I would see driving. And it, it took several months to get into the double digits. Um, and then after about six or eight months, um, so I think sometime in early 2019, it, it just sort of mushroomed. And it was women driving were everywhere. Uh, and it, at no point was it really a, um, a remarkable kind of head-turning event, um, as, as a lot of people had feared that this was going to create mass chaos in the streets. Um, you know, there were some 
celebrations. There was some honking. There was definitely some harassment. I, I've heard from um, female friends, both Saudi and foreigners, um, by by men, you know, who uh, who would drive up and uh, you know roll down their window and uh, you know mostly just sort of uh, flirtation kind of things. But um, uh, it it kind of just became a natural part of of life, uh, and the same has happened with um, the the general general end to segregation of the of the genders um, in public places. I mean, there still is still does exist to a certain extent, but walking into restaurants in Riyadh, um, there right I think right before COVID, um, the municipalities decided that there no longer needed to be a separate section for men for for single men and a separate section for uh, for families or women. Um, and that's been I mean that's just move fast move move forward rapidly. Um, and the same thing with um, especially with women's uh, women's dress, I mean the abaya, uh, there's still many, most women wearing the abaya in Riyadh, um, but actually a friend visited recently, um, hadn't been here since before COVID, and was commenting on seeing people in the malls, seeing women in the malls without, without abayas, which I sort of have stopped even noticing, um, because I, I think it just happens on a, on a pretty regular basis. Um, with that said, I was in, uh, in the South um, last week, two weeks ago, and um, Definitely, the changes are not as drastic there. Uh, many fewer uh, women drivers, many more uh, sort of black abayas, um, very, very covered. And, um, you know, even in the restaurants, uh, still usually division. Um, and I, I was actually there when there was this sort of announcement that um, prayer time closures were going to end so that shops and malls and supermarkets and everything, restaurants um, wouldn't close for 30 or 40 minutes every every prayer time. Um, and it was a bit, it was a bit confusing. It wasn't very authoritative, this this notice that went around. Um, but I was in Taif um, in in Western Saudi. And I can tell you, because I had to wait for an hour to get um, into a restaurant, that restaurants are still closing in Taif for um, uh, for prayer time, where in in Riyadh for for months, perhaps a year, um, they've they've gotten much more sort of lenient in, in that. Um, so I would say the social changes are definitely, have been the most drastic. Um, uh, you know, the political changes uh, in 2017, 2018 were really nonstop as well. Uh, I think your listeners, many of your listeners will be familiar with um, the sort of the rapid series of events from the, the time that um, uh, Mohammed bin Salman took over as Crown Prince in the middle of 2017, um, quickly followed by I think that was preceded a few weeks earlier by the um, the Qatar boycott, um, which just ended in in January, um, and then in November, uh, the Ritz, um, the roundup, uh, the anti-corruption roundup, um, putting a few hundred uh, princes and ministers and businessmen in um, the Ritz Carlton Riyadh, um, the uh, detention. The, the the short term detention, I guess, of the, the Lebanese Prime Minister here in uh, here in Riyadh um, and his forced resignation uh, from from inside Saudi, um, and just you know going all the way through to the next year um, to the the killing of Jamal Khashoggi in Istanbul, um, just a, a rapid series of events, and um, you know, and then with sort of the end of the Trump administration, um, a, a recalibration and a readjustment to um, m perhaps more traditional. Um, 
you know, U.S. policymaking towards um, towards Saudi after four years of, of the Trump presidency, which was full of surprises, of course. Um, and then we've got these these economic changes, which um, are uh, there. There are some very substantial ones. I think there are also um, some longer term changes that we're still not quite seeing uh, being implemented yet. Uh, there are plans for an investment strategy to be un unveiled um, soon. People have been waiting for that for a long time. Um, you know, they're, they're not sort of hitting the foreign investment targets uh, that they had set, um, notwithstanding COVID, which obviously has been um, created an obstacle for, for the entire world. Um, but they're, they are making, you know, some progress on, um, you know, economic reforms that had been touted in the past and had made, made little progress. Um, and of course, there's these series of, of mega projects, or they call giga projects, um, around the kingdom, and um, we're sort of waiting to see also uh, how far those go beyond um, sort of leveling ground, which they seem to, is sort of the stage that they seem to be at right now. Um, and if they if they go ahead, or or many of them become sort of the white elephants um, that um, previous mega projects in in, in previous um, reigns have have turned out to be in many cases. Stephen, you be you gave an excellent overview of the, the changes in the political, economic, and social realm. And the changes in terms of women, both in society and the workforce, and many of the things you talked about is, is really quite striking. I have not been to the kingdom since 2017, but I recall my, my trips and attending conferences, and uh, the gender segregation was striking. Uh, and to, to think of that being uh, changed so radically, I mean, is, is a huge step in a very short period of time. Yeah, it was. Um, so going going into the South um, a couple of weeks ago was actually pretty fascinating because uh, it one was a reminder to me um, of how much of a bubble Riyadh has become. Um, and you, you having last been here in 2017, probably also remember that Jeddah, um, was known to, for being sort of the more open, the more progressive, the more advanced in many ways. Uh, that's, I, I, I'm pretty sure we can say now it's sort of flipped and that Riyadh is now more open, more things are happening here. Um, I was recently with a, with a group of young Saudis, probably in their late 20s, early 30s. Um, a handful of women from, from Jeddah who had moved to Riyadh were telling me how um, sort of the opportunity is all in Riyadh. Um, the jobs are here. There's more freedom here. There's more, um, you know, there's there's a, sort of a brighter future they 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 saw in in Riyadh, which to me was striking because I remember when I first came in 2017, um, a a friend of mine who had grown up in Saudi um, in in Jeddah was on a business trip to Riyadh, and she said, "I'm not staying the night because I can't bear." To stay here any long, like a moment longer than I have to, um, and I actually talked to her separately recently, and she she had come to visit uh, a friend and said, you know, had a great time, spent a weekend here, went out to the desert, um, kind of, you know, there's lots of new restaurants in Riyadh, um, and so I think that is is changing quite a lot. Uh, but going down to to Abha, um, the other week, it, it was sort of like walking back in time for me in many ways, like walking into a restaurant and being reminded that there is a single section and a, and a family section still. Um, it, it's when you, when you live in Riyadh these days, um, I, I, there, are, there are definitely neighborhoods um, where that are a bit more conservative or traditional, where I think that still happens pretty regularly. Um, but it used to be that you couldn't, it was more the exception to find a place where 
they they would have you know sort of uh, turn a blind eye to uh, you know sort of flouting those sorts of rules, uh, and now it's definitely the the norm. Stephen, you mentioned also at the beginning of um, MBS's uh, term as Crown Prince, there was this series of political events. You talked about the Ritz Carlton, of course, leading up to the the murder of uh, Jamal Khashoggi. Um, would you say, uh, help? Uh, well, let me put it this way, help us understand this, uh, on the one hand, these reforms, which are dramatic, and on the other hand, these reports we hear of a crackdown on political dissent uh, and political opponents, would you say the following, are MBS's reforms popular among Saudis? And do you see the security situation as tighter or looser these days in the kingdom? Mm, those are really good questions. Um, you know, obviously, without there, there's no sort of uh, you know polling or anything um, uh, that re reliable polling uh, in Saudi in terms of public opinion. Um, going on Twitter or social media is a challenge because it's it's very heavily heavily manipulated both inside of Saudi and and um, by folks outside. Um, so it's not really a great um, sort of barometer of public opinion. But, um, you know, I would say that in, in sort of anecdotally from, from the conversations I have, um, a lot of uh, the Crown Prince's reforms are popular. Um, I, that Going back to that, that group of women from Jeddah that I, um, that I sat down with recently, uh, one of them told me, I was asking her exactly, exactly this, like, what's your, what's your impression? And, and this, you know, sort of, it's not an easy um, topic to, uh, to broach in, in Saudi, um, given, as you said, that sort of the crackdown um, arrests, the, um, the lack of tolerance for critical opinions. Um, but what she said to me was, basically, he gave us um, freedom, and he empowered us. Um, and I think that's a, that is definitely among uh, a certain class of people. And I think the challenge is identifying how broad that is, um, how broadly that applies. Um, but I think young women, young people in general, and especially women, have seen the quality, uh, by and large, have seen the quality of their life, uh, their lives improve, um, have seen the prospects for their future improve. Um, ha, you know, women who... Um, were educated, but um, faced restrictions every time they walked outside of their home, um, let alone considering getting a job and, and all of the complications that that entailed, um, now see that as well within their reach. Um, I, you know, of course, in every situation, you know, um, certain people have, um, you know, maneuvering in their environments differently. So, uh, you know, they're, at the same time that some people have um, have seen vast improvements, um, there are a number of women, especially um, and and other Saudis, who have you know been imprisoned, intimidated, um, and you know treated very poorly, uh, very badly by the government, um, which you know we've we've of course documented in sort of these crackdowns on um, across the spectrum from women's rights activists to um, uh, you know conservative clerics intellectuals um, and, and then the certain people who they're not really nobody's really sure why they kind of got arrested um, was it a, sort of a comment on Twitter was it a flippant remark in a private gathering that 
was perhaps reported. Uh, so I think in in some ways, um, definitely since I've been here, um, the the reaction that I've or the the description that I've been given um, by folks who who lived the previous era uh, is that it's um, there's much less room for criticism for political commentary than there was in the past. Um, and I think for some people that's a trade-off they're willing to make um, for improved social um, situation and um, you know economic prospects. Um, but it's definitely kind of a, I would say one of the defining tensions of um, the Crown Prince's sort of you know de facto rule. As a reporter, how is your access with Saudi officials and contacts? You obviously have an amazing network given your work in Saudi Arabia and in the region over the years. Is the work in Saudi Arabia easier or more difficult, would you say, than other countries in the region? And is it easier or more difficult after 2017? Um, I would say that it's, I mean, I've worked in Egypt, Lebanon, Iraq, and, um, and taken trips to a few other countries in the region uh, as a reporter. And it's, it's definitely the most challenging place in terms of access. Um, and I think part of that has to do with the structure of government, uh, which is in, especially increasingly under, under um, uh, MBS, uh, more um, uh, sort of, uh, what's the right word, more hierarchical and sort of, um, you know, single channel. So there's a much smaller circle of people who are involved in decision making. Um, and I think they're quite um, effective at preventing leaks and, you know, kind of keeping everybody um, on on side. Um, I, I think in previous eras, uh, when there were, you know, the various princes, a uh, handful of brothers mostly were, um, you know, had had control over different sort of fiefdoms. Um, there were sort of circles of influence and um, ways to, you know, learn information in a way that um, I would say when I was reporting in Iraq, um, you, you can go through, you know, is it very obviously a different structure, but um, there were sort of these tribal structures um, where you could um, access, uh, could gain access to information and understanding what was happening in the country. Um, and it, in, in a somewhat similar way, um, I think you used to be able to go to, if you were cut out of one uh, prince's orbit, you could find your way into another prince's orbit and understand from that perspective what was happening. Um, I think now it's much more sort of consolidated. And so that makes our job uh, much more difficult. Um, and, um, and I would say, you know, that the, the Saudis are, um, you know, they, they want to have, I think they enjoyed a lot of like a, a very positive media cycle. Um, from uh, around 2016 when the vision was announced and rolled out and there were um, there was you know years of talking about Aramco and speculating about the IPO um, and the social changes that were coming and the economic reform promises um, there was the first uh, Davos in the desert type uh, event in 2017 which was star-studded and brought a lot of positive attention um, and uh, you know then obviously uh, uh, I think sort of crystallized by, by the Khashoggi killing was a very intensely negative um, cycle for, for, for the Saudis, for MBS. Um, and 
you know, I think in some ways they've um, by now calibrated a little bit to that. I think it, was, it came as a bit of a shock um, to some officials that this was, um, that, that, that the killing hit, hit them so hard and lasted for so long. Um, and, uh, you know, I would say that they, um, that, you know, I've been in the country for four years, I've been accredited, um, uh, and we've written uh, both at Reuters and the Wall Street Journal, um, some pretty hard hitting uh, pieces about what's happening in the country, as have, as have many of my colleagues from, from other outlets. Um, and, you know, while, there, while certain people do have, have issues getting back into the country, um, for example, I think uh, some of the things that have been written now would have gotten some of us kicked out of the country in the past. Um, not to say that there's, um, you know, I, I think local journalists also face much more of a, um, you know, many more restrictions um, than foreign journalists working for foreign um, organizations. Um, so, you know, I always encourage the Saudis to, you know, give us more access. I think they're, in some ways, they're they're doing that or they're trying to do that. Um, but it's, it's um, you know, it, it, also a, a kind of structural, I think there are people in the system who, who understand and appreciate and want to encourage more openness, um, but there's a whole sort of, you know, system that's been, that's been opposed to that uh, for a long time. And so it's, uh, it's, it's the most challenging place to work, but it's also, you know, endlessly fascinating. Stephen, the Biden administration came into office uh, promising to reset Saudi ties to make them more aligned with U.S. values and to stand in contrast with the Trump administration's approach to Saudi Arabia. Now, it'll be recalled that Trump's first trip abroad was to the kingdom, and that was a big deal for the kingdom and in terms of U.S. policy. Now, it was a first order of business the Biden administration, in contrast, published the unclassified intelligence report that assessed the crown prince had approved the killing in, of Khashoggi in Istanbul. How has this turnaround in the U.S. approach to Saudi Arabia in such a short period of time been digested by the kingdom? And what, how has the kingdom dealt with this shift and how is it seeing its relationship with the United States at this point? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think the, um, that, that trip by Trump um, in the beginning, I think it was by May that he was in, in Saudi Arabia was, was really remarkable. Um, and I think uh, the Saudis also had, you know, very direct access um, to Crown Prince and Jared Kushner, um, you know, known to have, um, have had a, a direct line of communication. Um, and um, that, you know, they, they also had very closely aligned sort of agendas, especially for the region. Uh, and so they were, um, you know, in, in some ways, in, you know, almost in lockstep on, on many issues. Um, although there were tensions, there was, um, you know, issues over, over oil. Um, I think uh, Trump's unpredictability um, uh, sort of uh, royalty and feathers here as well. Uh, um, and made it a bit a bit difficult for them to quite understand where things were going. Um, I think the the Biden administration, you know, was clear uh, in the campaign that they were going to take a different tone with um, with Saudi Arabia. So it does, didn't come as much of a surprise, I would say, um, that they took you know that that sort of the um, the way that Trump dealt with them uh, was no longer on the table. I mean, they know Biden from. 
the Obama administration, obviously, and and before that from the Senate. Um, you know, he's been a big player in the Middle East for years. So, um, I, you know, I think they, um, I think there was a period in between the election and sort of the first few weeks of the administration where there was this uncertainty and the sense of how bad is it really going to be. Um, and, you know, in addition to the Khashoggi report, um, which was not as um, sort of with the reaction that, that, generally in Saudi was, you know, there was no smoking gun, um, that they they didn't have, you know, the Americans don't have the evidence that they um, said they did or that they bluffed that they that they did um, uh, because there was, you know, sort of didn't, didn't disclose um, information that wasn't really already in the public, in the public sphere. Although as a, as a first gesture um, from, the, from the incoming administration, it, it obviously sent a message. Um, and then Biden, of course, also saying that he was going to Re, reinstate sort of the protocol of, of everybody dealing with their counterpart. So he was he was going to deal with the king and uh, the defense secretary was going to deal with uh, the crown prince as his sort of equal. Um, uh, you know, in addition to that, I think we, we might talk about this in a, in a little while. Um, you know, the Yemen war, ending the Yemen war was sort of one of the central planks of um, Trump's first po foreign policy speech. And in, so in many ways, the, the Saudis, their, their response to all of this has been, you know, we agree on 90% uh, of, of issues with the Americans. Um, and there's, yeah, there's 10% that we don't agree on, but, you know, you can have disputes between friends. Um, and so they try to sort of, um, you know, obviously play down uh, those differences. Um, I think the, uh, you know, the Khashoggi issue in some ways, you know, the Biden administration may have been trying to uh, get that out of the way to sort of address their, um, you know, their, their stated commitments in the campaign and some of the demands of their uh, certain elements of the base um, to hold the Saudis to account on that and to, to disclose that report. Um, but there, there continues to be a lot of uh, close military cooperation. Um, I don't think that's, that's really changed. That there's obviously been some... Um, uh, you know, some of the weapons deals uh, approved by Trump have been are, have gone under review, and there's a big been a big push by Tim Lenderking and his team at State to um, facilitate a dialogue uh, with the Houthis to end uh, the war in Yemen. And um, the the Saudis have been really engaging with that and and seem pretty pretty genuine in wanting to end the war. Uh, I think that that's a, a you know a, a bigger challenge. Um, uh, but, you know, I think overall that the message from the Saudis has been that this is a um, 70, 80 year relationship and uh, we've gone through Democratic and Republican administrations and we always have a good relationship with, um, you know, with the United States and its institutions. Um, and so, uh, you know, there has been some criticism uh, of Biden from from the left that he's sort of just um, he released the Khashoggi report and then sort of moved 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 on um, without doing enough to hold the Saudis to account. Um, so I think that remains kind of again another lingering tension of this of this relationship. You mentioned Yemen and the the kingdom has been under some pressure, particularly from the Congress, also from the administration, uh, for its conduct of of the war. But it seems to me Riyadh, as you alluded to just now, sincerely wants a way out. And it's the Houthis backed by Iran that are holding out on the Biden administration's initiative, working with the kingdom to try to bring this conflict to a close. Is that a fair assessment? 
Um, yeah, I think um, that's definitely, um, you know, that's definitely the position that the Saudis have. And that seems to increasingly be coming out of Washington. Um, I think when, when Tim Lenderking uh, first took on the, the post of special envoy, um, he sort of tried to go to both parties in good faith and say, um, we want to we want to make a deal and want to end this war. Um, and the Saudis were very receptive to that, I think, because um, they're, they're, they've spent a lot of money and lost um, uh, a lot of blood in this conflict. And it's, as you, as you referenced, you know, damaged their international reputation. Um, and, you know, I think they, they have concerns about the ongoing um, yeah, ballistic missile and drone threat coming from the, the Houthis into Saudi territory. Um, and they also have concerns about, uh, you know, again, the, the Iranian involvement in the Houthis and in Yemen and, um, you know, ensuring that there isn't a, um, uh, you know, that, that they don't have this menacing presence um, on their border and that Yemen, um, it, you know, uh, returns to some sort of stability. Um, the, the Houthis um, seem to be on the, um, Sort of on the attack still. They're uh, the, the 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 main point of fighting um, recently has been in Marib, um, which is uh, a kind of one like a strategic um, a strategic city for the coalition that the Houthis have been threatening for several years. Um, and this seems to be one of the points of of um, conflict of disagreement in in the um, the efforts to to reach ceasefire. You know the. Um, the Houthis say that they're not going to, you know, um, stop their their march on on Ma'rib. Um, I think part of that is because they've pledged to be taken, and so for their domestic base, um, there's some there's some necessity to follow through on that. Um, but I, you know, I think the Houthis also feel a little bit like they um, have tried in the past to, um, you know, pre before the Biden administration that they had. Um, uh, you know, sort of countenanced a, a ceasefire from their side and they, they felt like the, the coalition didn't respond, didn't reciprocate and that they were burned. Um, and so I think being sort of feeling empowered and feeling on the advance, um, I think they, they seem to be trying to, um, you know, play their as strong a, a hand as they, as they can. Um, and that's, uh, you know, increasingly frustrating to the Saudis and I think to the administration, uh, which you can see in the, the remarks coming out of the State Department, you know, sort of um, urging the urging Houthis to um, come come to the table. What does the kingdom expect from its meetings with Iranian officials that are facilitated by Iraq and is there a, a nervousness that the U.S. might rejoin some version of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action or Iran nuclear deal? How are they seeing the Iranian threat? Yeah, I mean, I think what we hear about the um, these these sort of back channel talks with the Iranians um, is that in many ways it's sort of I mean it's been. Um, six years um, since the, uh, you know, the execution of Nimr al-Nimr, which sparked uh, protests in uh, Iran, um, include, which led to the, the storming of the, the Saudi embassy, and I, I believe a consulate, um, which was sort of the trigger for the, the cutting of relations. Um, and so 
in, in some ways, what we hear is that this is about feeling each other out and building kind of um, each side setting out their, their positions, um, talking about, you know, what's the issues that are important to them um, and kind of just getting to know each other a little bit um, after this, this long period of uh, disconnection. So it, it doesn't seem like there's, you know, a major breakthrough coming uh, in, in that, on that track. I, it, I think it's probably a positive development that they're talking to each other rather than not. Um, hopefully that, that provides a channel for deconfliction, um, you know, not, uh, not misunderstanding certain signals in the region. There's a lot going on, including this, um, you know, the ship that was attacked last week, uh, off the, the coast of Oman, um, that sort of thing, you know, making sure that those things don't, uh, don't escalate unnecessarily or unintentionally. Um, and, uh, but, but I think, you know, the, the Saudis are, um, you know, very keen to see an end to the Yemen war. And they're, um, I, I think in these talks, they're, they're asking the Iranians, you know, we need your, we need your help, or we want you to, to um, press on the Houthis to, um, you know, stop attacking, stop sending these, these cross-border attacks our way, um, and, you know, come to the negotiating table and end this once and for all. Um, and the Iranians seem, you know, and of course, sort of, denying that they have any influence over the Houthis um, also seem more interested in uh, kind of repairing that bilateral relationship, reopening uh, diplomatic missions and kind of patching this all up and moving on. Um, I think the Saudis often feel like they're not being, their concerns aren't being addressed um, in those, in those talks. So, um, you know, I, I think they've also, after the election of, of Raisi, um, I believe they were that those talks sort of paused, um, and also in in light of the the talks in Vienna over JCPOA, um, which again have also kind of been put on pause until after the new the new Iranian administration um, gets settled in. Uh, that there's sort of this sense of this uncertainty about um, you know what's going to happen with with Iran and the United States, um, and so. I, you know, I don't know that this is sort of speculation, but uh, you know that the back channel um, in in Iraq, uh, it may have the Saudis may have decided that it was time to open that. I think the Iranians had been open to it for a while, had been had been seeking it. Um, the Saudis may have seen, you know, the new administration, in Washington is coming in, they're having these talks. Uh, it might be a good good way to position ourselves for whatever comes next. Um, and you know, obviously there was. Um, uh, quite a lot of resistance in the Gulf to um, JCPOA and to this sort of perceived warming, U.S. warming to Iran. Um, I think that uh, they, they continue to have their concerns that returning to the deal without addressing the other issues, um, mainly the, the ballistic, the Iranian ballistic missile capability and their support to groups around the region and, and sort of uh, perceived intervention um, against uh, the Saudis and, and, and others um, in the region needs to be addressed. Um, and I, I think the Saudis are a bit concerned um, uh, about whether the, the Biden administration has a plan post, you know, if they go back to the deal, is there a plan for addressing those other issues? I think the Biden administration is well aware of those concerns. Um, I don't know that they've uh, decided on a course of action or have communicated what the course of action will be to their allies in the Gulf. Uh, because there, there seems to be some um, concern that, you know, after Raisi gets 
um, installed and, and if, those, if those talks in Vienna um, are fruitful, ultimately, uh, what comes next? Where does the kingdom stand at this point on normalization with Israel? Um, you know, I, I don't think much has changed. Um, I, we haven't seen much much um, advances in on that topic um, since last year when, um, you know, it looked like, I mean, obviously there were a number of countries in the region who normalized and there was a lot of speculation about um, Saudi being next. Um, there, there were some sort of mixed, mixed signals by, um, you know, with it from within the kingdom, um, not all within the governments, uh, but people trying to sort of parse the, um, the code, you know, internally. Uh, but, but ultimately, I think where it came down was, you know, reiteration of um, Saudi Arabia's, you know, desire to normalize after a, uh, you know, an acceptable, a fair, a fair resolution of the Palestinian conflict, um, which has been their position for years. Uh, so I, I think there's, uh, you know, a keenness and a, and a hopefulness that that will move forward. Um, the, uh, the war in Gaza um, earlier this summer, I think definitely didn't help, um, uh, but there, there is sort of, uh, I think you can feel uh, still sort of like a, a new approach um, or a new tone, at least. Just the other day there was in, in the Olympics in Tokyo, um, there was a uh, an Israeli, I think it was judo um, competitor, you know, a competitor who um, the the uh, Sudanese uh, wrestler and then the Algerian wrestler after him uh, refused to uh, refused to compete um, with the Israeli, and and then there was a Saudi wrestler who was then slated to compete and and went ahead and and um, participated and shook uh, shook his competitor's hand afterwards, and I think that was. You know, one of these sort of small um, signals of you know we are we are heading in that direction, um, or perhaps you know a um, uh, sort of uh, warming up public opinion. I think a lot of a lot of analysts say that um, there's uh, some of these messages are both about you know setting out a test balloon and and seeing if there's any reaction, uh, but then also doing doing this sort of thing enough. Um, is a, is a good way to change perceptions um, and attitudes slowly over time. Um, and so, I, you know, I, it's, it's very hard to say um, when that might happen. Um, I've heard folks speculate that, you know, it, it won't happen while the king is alive uh, because it's a very personal issue for him. Um, uh, but, you know, I think there is, it's likely that there will be, you know, increasing, that this is sort of a path and they're, and they're moving down that path. Saudi-UAE relations have, have been quite good over the years, and uh, the Crown Prince has had a strong relationship with uh, Abu Dhabi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed. The connection seemed uh, strained uh, over the last month over oil policy. How do you characterize UAE-Saudi ties at this point? Yeah, I, I mean, it's a, it's a good point. I think... Um, like many countries in the Gulf, there there are historical sort of ties and also historical conflicts between many, perhaps all of the uh, of the Gulf states. Um, you know, which which go back anywhere between years to decades to centuries. Um, 
and so I think there are, without rehashing, you know, uh, some of the historical points. I mean, there are some some tensions there. Um, obviously, it's, it, relations have been quite strong uh, recently. Um, the crown princes, crown princes of Abu Dhabi, and the crown prince of Saudi Arabia have been, um, you know, very publicly supportive of each other. And um, you know, I think this 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 latest kind of dispute uh, inside of OPEC um, laid bare. Uh, you know some of the um, some of the competing interests. I think a lot of them are have to do with economics. Um, I think both countries are kind of headed in a similar direction. Um, there there have been a lot of comparisons since I came to Saudi about um, you know trying to compare Saudi to the UAE and what what it's what it's achieved in terms of diversification and um, you know opening itself up. Um, and I think Saudi is very a very different country. Um, in many, there, I mean, some of those comparisons are valid, but um, it's a much larger country. It's uh, you know in size and population, um, and the and the demography of its population being much more. There being many more Saudis um, than Emiratis compared to foreigners, uh, and uh, you know also uh, being the custodian of Mecca and Medina, um, they they have sort of a a larger um, you know uh, political weight, uh, which which gives them strength, but also um, allows the UAE maybe to uh, maneuver a little more quickly, um, and so we've we've seen some of these um, disagreements over the the past several years. I think they be it began with uh, the UAE largely disengaging uh, from the Yemen war, while Saudi was still very heavily involved and and you know being attacked on a regular basis across the border. Um, I think that that was um, very frustrating for for folks in in the kingdom. And um, so, you know, but, but on an economic level, I think they're heading both in sort of in, the, in, in a similar direction, um, trying to attract foreign investment, trying to diversify their economies away from oil, set up new industries. Um, and in, in some ways competing over many of the same resources. Um, and so we saw that the, um, I think it was back in January or February, um, the Saudis, sort of telling foreign companies that they were going to need to start relocating to the their 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 regional headquarters to the kingdom if they wanted to continue to um, bid on contracts with the government which is one of the biggest uh, is the biggest um uh, you know sort of prize for for foreign companies at this point uh, and that i think to many folks in dubai was seen as a direct challenge to uh, their status as being in this regional headquarters. And so I think there, you know, there will be kind of a, a settling down around that. Um, but it, it, we, we could see more, um, you know, as, as time goes on uh, and more of these issues sort of come to a, come to a head, we could see um, more um, conflict uh, between the two neighbors. Um, would also say that in the days after that OPEC agreement was ultimately resolved, um, you know, the Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi came to Riyadh um, as some people that I had that when I was reporting on this, they said, oh, you know, just wait in a few in a few days, they'll they'll meet and, you know, and make up and, and everything will be fine. And so, uh, you know, where we, we did see that, um, I, I think in some ways um, it, it's not a perfect comparison, um, but in some ways the, the Saudi UAE relationship um, can appear similar to the US UK relationship, which is it, you know, a, a special relationship in that way, in that it's so kind of um, core, they're core to each other, um, and they rely on each other, but there is 
you know, there are areas, of course, of, of disagreement. I don't know whether that will uh, hold over the long term. I think, you know, obviously the, histor the histories are, are a bit different. Stephen, we're running out of time, but I want to ask uh, one more question about oil and energy policy. Uh, you started talking about this uh, in your last answer. Tell us how you see in the coming years the prospects for diversification away from oil, if that's still possible, um, and what, if anything, has been the impact, as you see, long-term of uh, COVID-19 on the Saudi economy and any other challenges you foresee in the near future about uh, implementing the ambitious goals set in Vision 2030? Yeah, I mean, I think I think COVID um, obviously um, forced sort of a, a reevaluation. I mean, in some ways, it may have been positive um, in that it gave it gave Saudi Arabia a chance to pause and reevaluate. Um, they they, you know, some of their targets and goals. Um, they cut some cut a lot of budgets um, by not not an insignificant amount um, across you know various ministries. Uh, I think re evaluated where the priorities were. Um, they seem to double down on a lot of these giga projects across the country. Um, lots of, um, despite, you know, a, a lack of foreign investment at this point, um, the government seems to be plowing money into these projects uh, with the hope that eventually they will they will bear fruit and, and attract that foreign capital. Um, you know, I think in some ways, uh, Saudi is very lucky that COVID happened when it did. Um, in terms of after um, some of the changes that we talked about at the beginning of the podcast um, had taken root, I mean, the, the um, digitalization of a lot of government functions and a lot of economic activities um, made it possible for, uh, you know, very adaptive sort of response to, um, to COVID, um, both from a health perspective and economic perspective, sort of a quality of life. Um, so, you know, I think Long term, it's going to be a challenge, just like um, like everybody else. I mean, the, the the tourism industry was just you know they had just issued tourist visas, I think, six months before COVID hit, um, and so those plans have kind of been pushed back quite a bit. Um, they may have made some progress um, on some of the by by pushing ahead in some of these projects, um, made some progress uh, with without other distractions. Um, I think ultimately, you know, the the vision uh, is, of course, highly ambitious. Um, there, they've made you know uh, different levels of progress in different areas. Um, I, you know, they, they they do have ambitions to um, create new industries. There are some that are uh, like greenfield, like tourism and entertainment, um, where. They've they've grown quite a bit, um, but again on the back of lots of, of government investment um, and spending, and um, so I think that the jury's still out uh, at the moment. It's only been a few years, uh, but the jury is out on on where this where this ends up. Um, I think they're they want to you know um, create new industries, but they also and they want to create renewable energy. I mean, various uh, areas, you know, they talk about solar and um, hydrogen increasingly, um, but they, they still want to make the most out of 
uh, oil, the oil resources. And I think the, the oil minister has said, you know, the last barrel of oil is going to be pumped, that's pumped in the world will come from Saudi Arabia. So um, it's sort of a, a you know, a, a dual track um, approach. I think that their, um, their, some of their diversification efforts haven't borne as much, as much fruit um, at the moment, you know, at, at this point in time as they had, had hoped. Um, but I think they're, they, you know, continuing to push on uh, various levers, um, acknowledging that at a certain point that it's, it's sort of an inevitability that they will have to move away from oil, uh, but, but also trying to, you know, make the most out of this resource while they have it. Stephen, your reporting from Riyadh for the Wall Street Journal is really required reading for all of us who follow the region. Thank you for sharing your analysis with us today. Thanks, Andrew. It's great to be with you. We will be right back after this short break. I'm Ben Kaspit, Al Monitor veteran columnist reporting from Israel, one of the world's major news and action suppliers of all times, comparing to its tiny size. I've been covering and analyzing the political, diplomatic, and military arenas in Israel for over 34 years. My best-selling biography, The Netanyahu Years, was out two years ago. I covered seven prime ministers, one major war, two intifadas, one prime minister's assassination, two and a half peace treaties, four military operations in Gaza, and it's not letting up anytime soon. I am glad to invite you to On Israel, our brand new podcast, where we will discuss major events in Israel and its surroundings, talk to decision makers, leaders and analysts, and try to understand the chaos that comes with the territory of Israel and the Middle East. You will never have a dull moment with us. See you soon here on Israel Al Monitor. Thanks again to our guest, Stephen Kalin of The Wall Street Journal, and to our production team of Phil Calabro of El Monitor and Beowulf Roshlin of Two Square Media Productions. And thanks to all of you for listening. We will return next week. And in the meantime, please sign up for this and our other El Monitor podcast on Israel at your favorite podcast platform. Thank you.